What's up? Welcome in to the latest episode of the Irish Huddle Podcast. It's Monday, February 28th, 2022. I'm Patrick Engel, joined by Tyler Horker of blueandgold.com. Thick as Notre Dame kind of starts spring practice uh, a little later than uh, a lot of schools. You're seeing some of them already start it. Uh, one, tasking us folks with a weekly podcast for content here. But two, in that break, uh, I think the most relevant uh Topic right now, or at least this week with Notre Dame, is the NFL Combine. Notre Dame's going to have five guys there starting tomorrow. Jack Cohn, Kyron Williams, Kevin Austin, Kyle Hamilton, Myron Tagabaloa, Amosa. Ty, your initial thoughts, impressions, what to watch for, kind of things you'll be following. And now that the NFL's big scout-a-palooza is fully back after a year off, yeah, obviously two of those guys are pretty much surefire draft picks. Kyle Hamilton's going to be picked in the top 10. If he's not, then it's probably an upset. I mean, I don't see him falling out of the top 15 based on all these mock drafts that we're seeing. So the combine's kind of interesting because guys like that, I mean, what does Kyle Hamilton really have to prove to these people? I guess show up, show him that the knee is healthy really would be his thing. Obviously, it was uh, up in the air whether or not he was going to come back to finish his final season at Notre Dame last year. Ended up not playing in that Fiesta Bowl. And Kyron Williams just straight up opted out, which I do not hold anything against him for that because running backs get banged up. And he's a guy that, I mean, you'd think he'd go maybe on that second day. I think his highest upside is probably third round. I don't really see him going in the second round. So, He's probably got a little bit to prove, but I don't think there's much that he can really do to shoot up the draft. Uh, at this point, it's does somebody need a running back? Is somebody going to take a flyer on Kyron Williams type of thing? So for me at the combine, I'm looking at guys like Jack Cohn, Kevin Austin, and obviously Myron because, I mean, this could be huge for them, especially a guy like Kevin Austin who the talent is there, the size is there. Everybody knows that he could be a really good receiver on the outside, but can he show it in front of scouts? Can he show that he's consistent catching the ball? I mean, we, we see these drills. We, everyone watches the combine. We see how intensive some of these drills can be. Guys can really falter and stuff like that. So it's not really the test that I'm looking for in terms of bench press, vertical. Um, obviously, the 40 is probably the most important one of those for a guy like Kevin Austin. But I'm really interested to see him go through some of those pass catching drills and route running drills and to see if he can work his way into maybe – uh, getting drafted because right now I'd probably say he's an undrafted free agent. I don't know about you, Pat. Yeah, when you look at the guys who kind of all right, who's got the most to prove, who can help themselves the most, I think he's the answer to that. And part of that's because of kind of where he's at as a prospect. A part of it is because all right, what can Kyle Hamilton really do to help himself? He's a top five player on most of these top prospects lists. Like Kyron Williams, you figure he can help himself. Like I'm, I'm actually pretty curious to see what he runs in the forty. I don't know that I'm expecting it to blaze it per se, but if he does, maybe you start thinking about second round or, or more likely second and third. But at the same time, you don't really see him moving off day two just because of the position he plays. You just don't see running backs go in the first round very often. So he's playing against that ceiling a, a little bit, but. I think can help him push himself up a little bit toward uh, the second round if he if he runs a, a good time. Jack Cohn, I don't know 
how much he can help himself just because I think he made the move he needed to at the Shrine game. When I talked to the Shrine Bowl director, Eric Galco, uh, director of uh, player personnel there, he had seemed to indicate that there's a lot of movement after that game of, all right, he's thinking Jack Cohn's probably going to be drafted based on what he showed in that team setting. And with him, it's the selling point is like a reliability and a trustworthiness to run your stuff, run your offense, right? And you can prove that a lot easier in a week of practice in a game than you can running a 40 or throwing on air or doing an interview or a bench press for a QB at the combine. So as long as uh, if he throws it and doesn't short hop five passes, you figure, all right, his big move has probably already been made where I don't think you're going to see him like all of a sudden go up to day two based on this. And if he goes earlier than you think, it's probably just because of demand for that position and that some team values him a little higher and knows, okay, you're probably going to have to reach a little bit if you want to get him earlier on day three than you think. But anyway, to steer this all back to Austin, I, I think it's really coming down to, all right, can you convince the teams that there is a lot of upside here and a desire to, all right, this is someone you should take a flyer on uh, based on how he, he tests in athletic ability. And that comes down to, all right, what's he going to run in the 40? I'm curious. I think he can, I wouldn't be surprised if he's you know, safely below four or five there, but uh, certainly what he should, he should shoot for. And then like you said, the routes, like what does he look like in, in that area? And is it more, I guess, consistent? And do you see the fluidity in that setting? And, and part of the consistency that maybe wasn't quite there from game one to game 13 for him this year. So I think he probably has the most to prove, maybe the, the biggest chance to take a leap relative to where his stock is or chance to, I don't want to say lose it, but kind of figure, all right, not a lock to be drafted now and leaving there in that same position also kind of remains on the table, I would think, if he doesn't, say, test as well or run the, the routes as well as he, he'd hope to. Yeah, the, the word that I'm – going back to with Kevin Austin is reliability. I think that's what these teams are looking for out of him in the combine. And I know it's only a week's worth of drills and what these guys are out there for. We'll go do the press conference, right? So it's really only two days worth to show these teams that, yeah, I can be on an NFL roster and I'm going to help an NFL roster. But there's just so much that these people that are looking at every single second of what these athletes do at the combine, there's so much that they can see. And if Kevin Austin doesn't run a, something around a four or five, does he hang his head? What are his, his mannerisms? If he drops a few passes, because they put them through the ringer in those pass catching drills. If he drops a few, doesn't run a route the way that he wanted to, how does he react to that? Because he went through a lot at Notre Dame. So he should have that, you know, clear headed mentality to where I've been through a lot. I can get through a lot, but he has to show teams that, Hey, I'm not the best wide receiver in this draft, probably not even close to the best wide receiver in this draft, but I can help. And I can help an NFL roster over the course of time. So with guys like that, uh, I'll go back to the Jack Cohn thing and a, a name that kind of popped into my head. And it's not just cause I'm a Texas graduate, but it's kind of, Garrett Gilbert-ish in that Garrett Gilbert had to transfer away from Texas. He went to SMU and he was pretty good. I mean, he, he kind of lit it up there, but I don't think anyone was thinking, oh yeah, that guy's going to be in the league for a while. 
here we are. How many years later? Over five, probably over six. He's still in the NFL. He's been hanging around rosters. I know he was on the Cowboys. He was on the Cleveland Browns. So it's kind of Garrett Gilbert-ish to me when I think of Jack Cohn because people are like, okay, yeah, he went to Notre Dame. He had a good year, but it's not like he was prolific by any means. I mean, he didn't do what he did against Florida State throughout the course of the season. He wasn't throwing for 300, 400 yards a game. But if I'm if we're sitting here five years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if Jack Cohn was a backup on an NFL roster because what he's going to do at the combine this week is show people like, hey, I'm reliable. So that's why it goes back to that word for me. You can look at it with Kevin Austin. You can look at it with Jack Cohn. Reliability is going to be huge, and they can show that at the combine. Garrett Gilbert, the uh, Irish huddle crossover uh, alma mater pod uh, prospect there. Yeah, Texas and SMU, shout out Shane Boussel. Uh, same situation, although not drafted. But that's a good analogy I think you bring up with him in that Gilbert, yeah, I don't know that you necessarily saw him as a, a slam dunk draft pick, but he was he was a six-rounder, and he stuck in the NFL for uh, – he was on the Patriots practice squad, I believe, just this past season, and he was drafted mm-hmm. in 2014. So he's kind of bounced around and been viewed in positive enough light to stick around with an organization most years since that drafted year. And he was the Super Bowl champion, so – and having watched both of those guys up close and personal uh, for a season apiece, I think the trustworthiness or reliability uh, element uh, between the two, if you had to pick one of them, I think you, you side with uh, with Jack Cohn there. And certainly that lines up to how you heard coaches and teammates talk about him publicly and, and privately like as someone who was really easy, easily assimilated into not only the offense but the, the culture of the team. And, and you figure that's going to serve him well as he tries to go about making a roster after he's drafted or after he signs as, as an undrafted free agent. But yeah, certainly I, I would think at least going into the combine, there's uh, the chances of him being drafted are, uh, it, it sounds like much higher than 50%. Yeah. And I guess we'll kind of wrap up this combine talk. We haven't talked much about Myron. We mentioned him at the top, but he's another guy that probably is not going to, you know, blow you away. He's, he's a tweener, I guess, in the sense that is he a defensive end? Is he a defensive tackle? Uh, I think he he did really well at the Shrine Bowl, too. And um, I guess, Pat, you talked to some people about Myron. If you want to just go ahead and tell everybody what they said, because they said some really good things about him, I think. Yeah, I think he falls in a little bit of the same kind of area as like Cone in the sense of he made the big move there. And as long as you don't test really poorly and kind of tank that, then you figure he's in a good position. And I would, uh, he's a, a safe draft pick at this point, probably somewhere on day three. But you actually mentioned the, the tweener idea. I think that's what he kind of came in there as in the eyes of most of these teams, but left it. And this is the words of the, uh, the Shrine Bowl director of personnel who I, I talked to. Uh, he, he's not a tweener. He's a both. And, and kind of using that week to prove, like, yeah, I can hang out here at defensive end in some spots. I can kick inside on passing downs and be effective there as a rusher in in both of those situations. So I, I think he, he did a good job of kind of turning that into – you hear tweener and think it's kind of a negative connotation, right? I, I think with Myron, he was able to use that Shrine Bowl week to kind of turn that into a, a positive where, all right, a scheme versatile kind of guy who can – say, work there in a, as a five-tech in a three-man front, kick inside in a 4-3 uh, on passing downs, or even play out there on the edge in a four-man front. So being able to prove that both of those kind of work, I, I think, is 
one helps the draft stock and two kind of opens up the possibilities of where you can go to more teams because that's going to, you can kind of work at both and fit between both probably a lot more scheme versatile and less kind of pigeonholed of, all right, this is only a guy who say a, a t- team that runs like a specific type of defense could use. Yeah. And I think he's going to be a guy that blows people away in the press conference setting too. I don't know how he's going to test. He's obviously pretty big, um, uh, doesn't move as well as you'd like for, you know, an outside rusher, if that's what he ends up, you know, trying to become at the next level. But he's a guy that's just so impressive with everything that he's been through. He was one of the guys that I loved talking to in press conference settings. And just the fact that, you know, his father passed away a couple weeks into uh, fall camp last year, or maybe it was like the first week of fall camp. He goes back home to Hawaii to spend time with his family and then comes back to, uh, practice in camp and people are like, Hey, I didn't even think you were going to be here. He's like, no, I want to be here with you guys. This is what I want to do. And then he faces the media, you know, and, and there's just a huge group of South Bend reporters around him. And he's like, yeah, I'll talk about this. I'll talk about anything. You know, I'm, I'm here to face my last season in Notre Dame and this is who I am. And just so impressive. He's a guy that if we're talking about reliability on and off the field. He's going to show it at the NFL combine. And I think that's, what's going to land him on an NFL roster in a couple months oh yeah in terms of intangibles team interview settings press conference settings like that's that's going to be as as good as you can hope for with him and in heart to top as far as any any prospect there with Meyer. that part of it you have no concern that he's going to knock out of the park there but that's what's going on with former notre dame players we're going to switch to the current team and bring on our guests this week notre dame rising senior defensive end nana osafo mensa we are joined by Notre Dame rising senior defensive end, Nana Osafa Mensa. Nana, I appreciate you hopping on with us today. Yes, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. We want to start it off with first, uh, I know you've kind of partnered uh, with Meat Leap. It's, it sounds like it's a version of Cameo, but maybe a little more personal. I mean, one just kind of tell us how that came about and, and what you've been able to do with that so far. Yeah, Meat Leap is a like, new little platform that I'm able to be a part of and blessed to have the opportunity to be with them. And basically, it's going to um, give me the chance to be able to meet with my fans and be like uh, make a relationship with them and just talk to them more of like a deeper level rather than just like DMs and all that. So, you know, it's just like going to be basically like a three to four minute call to where we can just get on a Zoom like conversation basically like we're doing right now and just chat. And then it allows me to also um, use the funds to donate to a charity of my choice. So I'm really excited to be able to get with this um, new app, new platform, allow me to also build this a type of different type of connection with my fans rather than just having to be out there in like Instagram or Twitter, but being able to chance to like really talk to them and get to know them. So I'm excited for that. And I'm sure the fans appreciate that kind of personal touch too. And when we start kind of going on your, uh, your junior season here, I imagine the play that most fans will remember is the play against Purdue where it was a receiver pass that you sniffed out. Uh, I think they credited you for a sack in hindsight. Uh, kind of take me through that and what you remember seeing on that. And if it was something like, hey, you saw this on, on film earlier or just instincts kind of took over and let that happen. Kind of take us back through that play a little bit. I mean, we knew that Purdue was going to be a big team to like catch us with the trick plays and all that. But in the time being, honestly, I just remember all the old linemen cutting everybody. And then they have this little screen out pass. So I'm thinking this may be like a little quick screen, tunnel screen type thing. Get cut, fortunate enough to run out there. And then luckily the dude made the fake downfield and wanted to, he, I mean, eventually wanted to throw it back across the field. So, I mean, just running to it, making the play, throwing them on the ground. 
everybody's going crazy. So I got out just screaming and dancing. It was just a lit moment, you know. So it was an awesome opportunity, though. So obviously, Nana, you've got that on tape. You've got a lot of other snaps. You played pretty much throughout uh, the season there in a reserve role. Spring practice coming up. It's a big time for players like you to kind of carve out a bigger role on the defense. And with Myron Tagovailoa, Mosa leaving, going on to the NFL, trying to get drafted here in a couple months, that opens up a big uh, spot there at the strong side defensive end position. What are you trying to, to do during spring practices? And what are your goals for the next couple of months to kind of show the defensive coaching staff, hey, I can fill this spot that Myron left behind and I can be that guy at the strong side defensive end position? I mean, my biggest goal is just to become like the best football player I can. And in that I know it's going to come with a ton of training in terms of agility, strength and everything, of course, that relates to football. So with the new coaching staff and some new players, I'm just really having the mindset this spring ball to come in and really build more of just this new bond with everybody. Because I feel like when looking at in the hindsight of basically trying to start and all that, like, yes, of course, that's going to be my goal. But at the same time, we have a huge season coming up next year with the opening up with like Ohio State, having Clemson at home, you have UNC going to USC. I'm just really going to be going to the spring ball, really focusing on building this connection with my teammates and my D-line, especially I got a new D-line coach, because that's going to have to be the thing that doesn't matter who's starting, doesn't matter who's playing. As long as if we don't have the camaraderie, like, uh, camaraderie, then we're not going to be able to be successful in the field. So hopefully that's what I'm going to be going into spring ball, really looking forward to the most and like playing as in terms of goals, basically. So as a junior, you went from, all right, missed most of the, or all of the, uh, the sophomore year with the, the knee injury. And then seemingly pretty early on in camp or, or even going back to spring seemed like it was clear that, all right, you're going to be part of the rotation on the two deep, all that kind of stuff. What was the key there from just being able to go from kind of zero to 100 with that and, and being able to put the injury behind you and then seemingly make a good impression right away from, uh, you know, the start of the offseason to get you to that point where you were playing pretty regularly? I mean, it was a um, <clears throat> it was a quick change. And I mean, it definitely difficult at first, but I had a lot of faith in my coaches that basically helped me get back in my like rehab throughout my injury, all the training staff, especially all the amount of drills I was doing on the field during practice that I'd be doing on my own. Just doing all those type of things, I really got my confidence back. And when it was time to put the pads on, I felt like it did in the year like 2019, 2020, basically. I mean, it was the same, still football, nothing really changed. I mean, still defense, chasing after the guy with the ball. And so just getting out there and being able to still like maintain my strength in the weight room and having that summer to prepare and winter off season is what helped, like allowed me to really get my confidence back completely and go out there and make a mark for now so that I could build on that coming up in this next season. Yeah, it seems like you never really lose instincts, right? Like in, in, in that early season play where – instincts took over I imagine is kind of an indicator of that of it's you know you've been playing long enough where even you know one season is not going to completely set you back totally exactly no no you mentioned uh, the new coaching staff obviously uh, Mike Elston off to uh, Michigan where you know that's his alma mater and in hindsight maybe not be the most surprising departure from the coaching staff but in comes Al Washington who was at Ohio State for the last couple of years and he's been billed as an awesome recruiter. I'm sure Notre Dame will you know, love to have him on the coaching staff in that regard, but what have you learned about him as a football coach, as a person, just being around him uh, the last couple of weeks since he, you know, came onto this Notre Dame coaching staff. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's only been about 
I think two weeks since we've really been in like conversation with him. But from the get go, we were able to tell like our whole D line was able to tell like this is a guy that really cares about us and everything. I mean, he came in just always talking about how it's a privilege for him to be here to coach us because he's the one that chose to this job and chose to come coach us. And I mean, so far in every workout that we've been having, he's always out there. If he's not just cheering us on, then he's out there even like literally running with us in some of these drills. And you can just tell how much he cares and how much he wants us to transition whatever workout we're working on to football. I mean, even like today itself, we're just doing regular agility drills, football specific, and we're told to run through the cone. And he's like, you got to remember running through the cone is like when you clear the O-lineman, you got to run to the quarterback. Like you have to go with that pursuit. So, you know, just being able to see how engaged he's been with us so far in his little time he's been here really like speaks a testament of what type of coach he's going to be for us this upcoming season. Cause we really know he's going to, you know, ride for us, take care of us and really be that coach slash father figure for us. So we're all really excited about it. I know I'm personally excited. So just can't wait to see how like this builds around the year. So. You've gotten the better part of the last two months without the defensive coordinator and then the defensive line coach who, you know, like I said, Mike Elston went back to Michigan. That's his alma mater. It makes sense. But it really seemed like he was, you know, really solid with Notre Dame and that he'd be here a while. How important was it to fill that vacancy with a guy like Al Washington really quickly, especially considering the defensive coordinator was in question for so long and you guys needed a position coach to come in and, and work with you guys specifically in a timely manner. It was definitely like a big crucial moment. And just the, um, I mean, that whole process really speaks to um, coach Freeman because coach Freeman has just really been focusing on like being able to have us trust in him, you know, and just when we all learned about coach Elson leaving, I know coach Freeman was thinking about how the D linemen were shook up about how close we were to Elston but he, I mean, I remember him calling us, take, telling us like he's going to take care of us. You know, we never lost faith in him. And then he pops out, hires Al Washington. I mean, I personally never heard of him, but I like trusted Coach Freeman about it. Because, I mean, I haven't met the guy, but I'm like, if Coach Freeman sees him fit for us and I already know he's going to be the best type of coach for us. Meeting him and then learning more about him and seeing how, like, well, I already love the dude and just have so much respect for him and all that just really speaks to, Coach Freeman and how much he really cares about us, like his players, and sees us more as just guys on the field running around hitting each other in the head. Like he really cares about the manhood we're building and like the uh, just the friendship that we all have. So I mean, the fact that he was able to bring in a D line coach so fast that was so well fitting to our group is really makes me happy and blessed to have Coach Freeman as a head coach. So it sounded like you mentioned where Coach Washington is out there doing drills with you guys. We talked to some of the the early enrollees last week who mentioned coach Freeman's in there in the morning with doing workouts with you. What's it like to have a staff that's, you know, not only just like, all right, you can tell they care, but to see an example of it where they'll go through it with you in, in, in those cases of where I'm sure those are some of the hardest moments of the entire year. And yet they're right there with you. What's that like to see them kind of in battle with you? It just really makes us feel secure in the guys that are, basically instructing us what to do and coaching us because like the best example of this was coach uh, Nick Lazinski and, and I'm so happy for him getting the job at Vanderbilt but I remember coach Lazinski since my freshman year has been in almost every conditioning workout every speed agility workout even in the weight room he's in there pumping weight and then I don't know all the new coaches names yet but hopefully I will but I, I'm pretty sure every coach that has been hired so far this season has been in the weight room with us but not even like not even cheering us on which is fine like they're in the corner doing their own stuff and that just shows to me like hey these guys want to get better so of course we're going to want to get better if we can all get better together then we're going to be the most most dominant team in the league 
you know, and just be able to go out there and dominate anybody we play against. And just seeing all these coaches out here, if they're out either on the elliptical treadmill, stair stepper, or they're doing core on the ground or they're pumping iron, like it really shows what type of coaches these are. Because, I mean, if they're the ones waking up just as early as we are to put in work for themselves, like that's the epitome of the type of coach player like relationship. I mean, everybody's working, everybody's working hard. So, I mean, I just really speaks to the type of bond I know this team is about to have in the next couple of months, and I can't wait to see it come. Something tells me Coach Freeman can get through one of Coach Bayless's workouts or make it through just fine. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. I, I think he would hold on his end for a while, but I don't, I don't know if Coach Freeman is really in that type of shape still. But I don't know. He's, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. So He could fool us, that's for sure. But uh, speaking of him, obviously this has been – a relationship you guys had for, you know, in 11 months before he got the job. And, and I'm sure that's changed a little bit with when and where you get to interact with him. But what do you like just most about him since you've gotten to know him when he first came on here last year? And how excited were you personally when you know you were in the locker room and, and he came in there and, and that was the clear that, yeah, he's getting the job? Um, I just like how transparent he is and how consistent he is with his transparency. I mean, like, if you have a problem, you have a question, you can literally call Coach Freeman and text him and he will pick up. Anything you want, Coach Freeman is going to be there for you. Even when we're having our little team meetings or if we're having, um, like, the end of a team run, he's talking to the team. Like, Coach Freeman will address all that, like, dirt in the air. If, he, if there's rumors out there, he'll shut it down and tell it straight to us. And that's something that I've always just cherished because I know being in his position, especially being a fresh head coach, I know his world is spinning and his head is just all over the place. And the fact that he can really let's basically hold us down and just be like, hey, guys, like, don't worry, I got you. Like, this is what's going on. Don't listen to this, this and that. I know the truth for you. And, of course, he's going to know the truth because, I mean, all the outlets out there are talking about things that they might not know 100%. And the fact that we don't even know it because we're seeing it on Twitter and whatever, but he can come up to us and just tell us. This helps us feel so much more, like, secure and just more comfortable and, like, focusing on the stuff that we need to focus on, not have to worry about all the news that's going outside, distracting us from the true mission itself. So being able to have a coach that just was always willing to communicate with us 24-7, no matter the time, no matter the day, just really helps us be more secure in our mission and remember, like, the goal itself and remember the brotherhood to make sure that we're always putting, like, each other first and not worrying about the news and worrying about what the people are saying or thinking and predicting all that. So, I mean, just being able to have Coach Freeman be so transparent with us has been my favorite thing about him. Spent the better part of the last couple minutes here talking about coaches and Obviously, coaches are vitally important to a program, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, program is only as strong as its players. I think Coach Freeman would be the first person to say that. That being said, what was it like for you to kind of watch some of your teammates who had, you know, decisions on their tables, go to the NFL, come back, maybe go somewhere else to play, decide to come back to Notre Dame? I mean, we're talking about Isaiah Foskey, who led the team in sacks last year. The Adam Malola brothers are both coming back. Uh, you know, Bo Bauer at linebacker, you mentioned wanting to be one of the best teams in college football. That kind of starts on the defensive end. You guys could have one of the best defenses in college football with all of these guys returning. What was it like to watch all of these guys say, hey, I want to run it back at Notre Dame in blue and gold? I mean, it was awesome to see each of them announce it. And even I felt blessed myself to be able to play with these guys a lot because these guys are really my brothers. I mean, like Foskey, the twins and Bo Bauer, like all you mentioned, like I love these guys. I talk to these guys and laugh with them every day, all the time. And just being able to have another year with them made me so happy because guys like Myron that I've, I've literally known Myron since he was a, 
he was a mentor actually for my um he was yeah he was a mentor for my roommate Jacob Lacey when we both took our official visit back in what like or fall of 2018 something like that something a long time ago and the fact that that's when I met Myron been with him this whole time and he helped me when I became well defensive end here and he moved to defensive end like seeing guys like that leave is definitely hard to see especially like Kurt Heinz the guy's been leading me forever too it's definitely hard to see those guys go but then the fact that we have a some of the guys still able to stay and just like continue to unite the brotherhood just really helped me feel confident and feel even motivated to go out there and play for them because they basically are willing to come back and go through all the hardships of the offseason, hardships of the spring ball, and even school to just come keep building this thing with us. And hopefully we get that ring. So the fact that they're really dedicated to this program, dedicated to Coach Freeman, dedicated to the Irish, this really helps me be motivated to always give them all every day and just really be blessed for the people I'm playing with. We are proud to announce a new sponsor for this podcast, Augie's Locker Room. Augie's Locker Room, which is located less than a mile away from Notre Dame Stadium, was named the best Notre Dame's collectible shop in the country. This shop is amazing. If you are a passionate Notre Dame fan and are looking for that special Notre Dame piece to complete your rec room, Augie's is the place to go. They have a wide selection of Notre Dame stadium pieces, jerseys, helmets, autographs, and one-of-a-kind rock knee items. They have an exclusive Joe Montana signed items. If Augie's doesn't have it in store, he will find it for you. Visit AugiesLockerRoom.com or stop in at 1811 South Bend Avenue and see the vintage helmet display dating back to 1890. AugiesLockerRoom.com or call 574-277-NDND. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A really interesting stuff there from Nana, and be sure to check out uh, Meet Leet, which he and some former Notre Dame players who you'll hear from in the next couple of weeks uh, are among the participants in. But not a guy you've really heard from at all, not someone who's, uh, I don't believe, has spoken with the media in his, his time here, but someone who you figure you might be hearing from this year as he competes at that strong side end position uh, that vacated by Myron Tagovailoa Amosa, and he was uh, the number two there last year. But anyway... In another peak off-season topic, uh, Ty, you did a story this morning, uh, more tied to Notre Dame, but taking a that local angle from a national story that uh, I believe it was Dennis Dodd from CBS did uh, late last week on college football. Uh, declining attendance figures, uh, declining, well, once again to a all-time low since 1981 uh, across the FBS in terms of average fans per game, down to 39,848. That's down 15% from 2008, 
And like I mentioned, the seventh straight year of a decline across the board in the FBS. And as he cited in there, more than half the teams in the top 25 uh, saw a decline. Notre Dame, its first game of the year, lowest crowd since 1996 at Notre Dame Stadium, witnessed that home opener 32-29 win over Toledo. Ty, you dove into this a little bit more in, in terms of correcting the story. What were your takeaways as you read Dennis's piece and kind of thought about it through a Notre Dame lens? Yeah, obviously there's – and I'm not even going to call them excuses because at this point they're valid reasons for people not showing up to college football games. And this is not a Notre Dame issue, as you just very well laid out uh, the CBS numbers there. And like you said, I went to uh, further detail in the story – this is happening across college football. You know, people are just not going to games. They want to watch them at home, obviously. And another thing is they don't want to pay for them. And I think one of the lines that I had in that story that we also can't overlook is uh, the COVID impacts. And there's two sides to that. There's guidelines and regulations that people want to stay away from at stadiums, uh, whether that's you got to wear a mask if you go in inside into the club levels or, uh, cashless transactions, you know, people, m mon money is still a thing, you know, the, the actual physical dollars are things that people have and they can't use them when they go to a stadium to buy a soft drink or buy a pretzel or something like that. Uh, you have to use credit cards. That's, I think that's deterring people. And the other side of the COVID thing is COVID itself still exists. And there are people who say, okay, I don't want to be surrounded by 60, 70,000 people. And possibly contract this virus that's still hospitalizing people across the country. So two sides to that. But you mentioned that Toledo game. And I mean, that's that's the home opener. That's the first game at Notre Dame Stadium of the season. And there's only 62,000 people there. Uh, since Notre Dame Stadium expanded in 1997, there's never been less than 70,000 people. Most of those games have been a sellout. Notre Dame sold out every single game at Notre Dame Stadium from 1973 to 2019 it was that navy game in november of 2019 when there were only 74,000 people at notre dame stadium that was the first time notre dame did not sell out notre dame stadium since 1973 so th this is just a sign of the times to me and i think covid really disrupted everything we went through that whole entire year in 2020 where you were lucky to show up to a game at notre dame stadium i mean you were there covering that season patrick there were probably what a couple thousand people at most at some of those games? I believe the max was about 10,000. I think they figured it out and got it down to about 16%. I think that was the, the maximum capacity. Yeah, I want to say about 10,000 ish. You can go, I mean, you can do the quick math if you have a calculator handy. I'm not going to try to do it in my head of what's 16% 16 of uh, 77,000 uh, capacity. And if I can. By just a few more seconds here, I can look up the exact attendance figures in the archive that they have on the site, which is not the same format in 2021. But we'll just go with uh, with that in that, yeah, about 10,000 or so. Although in 30 years, there's going to be 77,000 people saying they were at that Clemson game, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, but just to the yeah, the larger point is I think 2020 showed a lot of people what watching a game at home is like and that's why we saw pretty drastic decline i mean it it might not seem like it 
based on these numbers, but 76,288, that was the average at Notre Dame Stadium in 2019. 2021, 72,817. So that's about four and a half percent decrease. And that kind of adds up. I mean, that's 4,000 people not there per game. And a lot of those 4,000 are people who watched games at 2020 at home and said, you know, I'm, I'm drinking beer at home. I'm on my couch. I'm petting my dog as I watch Kyron Williams score a touchdown. Like all of those are good things. Yes. It's awesome to be at the stadium. And, you know, if you saw that 51 yard touchdown that Kyron had against Purdue or even the Navy touchdown, you're going to remember those experiences for the rest of your life. But I guarantee you the people who were watching those games at home are going to remember that touchdown too. Oh yeah. And just like everyone who was at home, except for the, I found it, uh, 11,011 people who were in the stadium for Clemson is going to remember where they were, how they reacted, who they were watching with for that kind of monumental win, just as that you were for, you know, whether you were among the 70,000 uh, in the stadium for North Carolina or the, who knows how many hundreds of thousands watching at home, you'll remember where you saw Kyron Williams's incredible, one of the best runs in team history, uh, 91 yarder against North Carolina. Like that's, those plays still have a way of, I think people have figured this out, and like you mentioned, with the sitting at home watching in the COVID year, they still have a way of resonating with you, even if you weren't there. And yeah, to the overall point of, of your uh, the the COVID kind of exacerbating it or maybe accelerating the trend, which like had been pointed out in here, seven straight years, this was something that was going on pre-COVID. Like people had realized, I can go in the during a commercial break and get a beer out of the fridge that's cold, and I didn't pay ten bucks for if the stadium sells it at all. And I can see better and it costs less on, on my TV right there than, than in the stadium. Like I, that's kind of what they're fighting increasingly is just technology that lets you watch at home has just gotten better. Like that's a development that, again, that predates COVID and certainly something you don't really think is going away. And now you think about, all right, Peacock and, and all that, like how are teams trying to like push the envelope on, bringing games to you, but also maybe kind of recouping a little bit of, at least in, in Peacock and the streaming service fee, uh, some uh, attendance figures that aren't maybe where you, you'd like them to be. But yeah, I, I was interesting. I thought it was interesting that the figure that uh, Dennis Dodd used in the story there was total uh, fans per game, which I think can be a little skewed by like Mac teams or Sunbelt teams that are getting maybe 15,000 for those Tuesday night games or they're selling 15,000 tickets and only 10,000 people are in the stands. But the overall number still kind of paints an idea. And especially when you see that line about more than half the top 25 experiencing a uh, decline. And the, the responses on our uh, message board to the story kind of highlighting, you know, hearing it directly from fans who were saying, all right, here's why I haven't been going or have been going. It's really a lot of the stuff we just talked about and again this none of this segment is to say like shame on anybody for not going and not at all like these are all really valid reasons to want to stay home which is a tv experience expense like that's that's a big deal and especially with notre dame this is a national fan base where you have fans that live coast to coast not exactly easy to get here versus say in wisconsin all right everybody's probably just driving in for the day that's one thing that you're you're kind of maybe fighting a little bit here, especially when it's a game against a Toledo or a Western Michigan or whatever it might be. But overall, I don't know that Notre Dame's going to feel this 
a ton, especially compared to mid-level Power 5 schools where you look up and you see, oh man, two-thirds full or something, or and not necessarily even in down seasons. And you know the students are always going to be there. Like, there are, there are challenges, including at my alma mater, of getting students to games. Notre Dame's not going to have that situation. But, yeah, you, you saw that this is probably maybe a, a thing to kind of monitor for some of these lesser games and you know, less marquee ones. Like, you know, they're not going to have a problem filling it up against Clemson. But, yeah, the, the cashless thing was interesting to me just in that, like, I don't know, maybe it's just our generation, but I – I don't care cash. Like, I don't, I don't care if I have to use my credit card. But then again, like, if, if you have cash on you and you prefer to use that, like, and it's easier, you know, okay. But I, I imagine, again, we've stated a lot of other, like, really valid reasons for why this is a problem and why it's not just here at, at Notre Dame. And I think at the end of the day, the, the schedule plays largely into this. And I, I don't think there's many excuses for 62,000 people, even if it is Toledo, considering that was the home opener. I mean, but that's an outlier and that's an anomaly. I mean, I've got the the numbers right here for the entire 2021 season and, you know, every other game had at least 70,000 people. So, uh, you know, maybe we need to talk to some more people and be like, Hey, why, why did you guys not go to that Toledo game? There might be more to it than that. But I mean, Cincinnati was a huge game, right? Everybody knew it. Cincinnati's undefeated at that point. Uh, everybody was, you know, any, anyone that covers college football at that point was saying if Notre Dame gets, or if Cincinnati gets past Notre Dame, Cincinnati might be the first group of five team to ever go to the college football playoff. It ended up turning out to be that way. That was a huge game sellout 77,622. And then the USC game, it's USC, Notre Dame. It's a huge rivalry. USC was down. They were not any good last year. And I think, I mean, they fired their head coach, what, two weeks into the season? One game into the season, I think. I mean, it was it was that quick, and they, that game was not going to be any good. Turned out to not be any good. But it's USC-Notre Dame, sellout, 77,622. So the schedule plays largely into this. North Carolina was bad last year. I mean, by, that, by the time Notre Dame played North Carolina last year, everybody knew this Sam Howell, Mac Brown thing. It's, it's just – it's going to end on a sour note because – they're just not any good. And I think that's the reason you only saw 71,000 people go to that game. So like you said, the Clemson game, that's going to be a sellout. Uh, I'd have to look further into the schedule next year. I know I've already done some articles on the entire schedule, but there's going to be some games that people are just going to say, Hey, I'm going to stay home and watch this for all of the reasons that we already laid out on this podcast. But when Clemson comes to town, some of those same people are going to be like, actually, I want to be there for that one. So I think now more than ever, too, it's, it's just easier to say, I can stay home for this one. Whereas 10 years ago, the thought process was still, I need to be there, I need to be there, I need to be there. It's just not that way anymore with the way our lives work and the way, you know, it's it's so easy to watch sports at, on TV at home. Yeah, that's that's really the crux of it. And to put it in the perspective of Notre Dame to the rest, like when you have 70,000 at all but one game in a 77,000-seat stadium, compared to some of the numbers we just read off, that's that's pretty good. And, and when you look at the whole idea of where attendance is going in, in college football, this is a Notre Dame game is still going to be a draw for people, whether it's longtime fans that want to make one trip there or just college football geeks who want to cross it off the bucket list. It's only going to be six of these things most years. Like, 
the demand is still going to be there. And this is not like, all right, you're up and it's going to be harder to spot. Like it, not like say a, I don't know, a pit game where you look at section 410 up there and there's 10 people up in, in that part of it. You're not going to run into that here. Yeah. And just because the number is sticking out to me so much, that Toledo game, I am curious. And I, I don't think NBC does not release like streaming numbers for Peacock. Does it? I don't think so. I don't think they ever put out like a, how many people subscribed on or in the two days before that, that game just to get that service and then canceled or how many retained it in the month. I know I've kept it since then. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's an interesting point is that there was a lot of talk on our message board on Twitter, probably around the country that, Oh my gosh, Notre Dame is only on Peacock. Like you can't watch this game on TV. You have to have this streaming platform to watch a Notre Dame football game. A lot of complaints, a lot of freaking out about it, but I bet you that attendance number was somewhat affected by people saying, okay, this is what it is in 2021. We're going to have to watch sports on streaming platforms going forward for a long time. Let me sign up for Peacock. Let's see how this goes. Let me watch this from home on this new streaming platform that I might not have heard of a month before then. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, that that's definitely going to continue to have an effect uh, on attendance numbers going forward if people were like, okay, this wasn't so bad. I'm paying, what is it, five or six bucks a month. And, you know, over the course of an entire year, that might have been less than they would have spent on a ticket, let alone traveling, hotel, all of that other stuff that goes into going to that season opening game. So just a lot of things to think about. And I mean, that, I think that's why there's been so much discourse on the on the message board in response to this story is because th this is what people are actually experiencing. And that's reflected in the numbers you can check that story out at blueandgold.com uh, if you're a subscriber and you haven't again that thread is there we'd love to hear any and all of your guys' thoughts about why you have been coming to more games or haven't been going to as many games and uh, just in a really kind of interesting sub trend for lack of a better term in in college football but that's going to do it for this week i don't know that we need to you know go half an hour deep long on, on attendance issues in, on, in late February here. But NFL Combine starting up tomorrow. I will be there hoping to talk with Jack Cohn, Kevin Austin, and Kyron Williams. Of course, we'll have some coverage of that the entire week and how the guys do. We will talk to you again next week, hopefully, uh, ideally, with another guest, kind of recapping the Combine and maybe getting a little geared more towards spring practice uh, as that comes up. Uh, a little bit closer on the calendar here. So until then, take care. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.